The following Dharma talk was given on retreat led by Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So we're getting close to finishing up in a funny way, just beginning our study of patience. Yesterday I was uh, talking about some of the basic expressions of patience that we can notice in our lives, this gentle forbearance. It's this way of wisdom, the wisdom of patience, how it can slow things down. And the way that mechanism of slowing things down to allow us to be a little bit more skillful than we would otherwise be is this wholesome concern. We don't want to harm ourselves. We don't want to harm another. And so whatever reactivity that's been triggered, it's, there's a counterweight to that, which is this wholesome desire not to cause harm to ourselves or others. And then the second or another expression of patience, the wisdom of patience, is what we, we might call um, a, an endurance of hardship, being able to endure what's hard to endure. And this is uh, this capacity when things are difficult. We've already done what can be done, and they're difficult. There's a way of doing exactly what we're afraid to do, coming right into the middle. And coming into the middle um, in a real sort of wholehearted way, not, not coming into the middle as a way of protecting ourselves, but really as a way of submitting or surrendering. And it seems a little magical how this happens, but it actually makes perfect sense. When we give ourselves to pain, even something ordinary like knee pain when we're sitting, 100%, then the person who has a problem with the knee pain disappears. It's really that simple. Because of the whole-hearted 100% opening, being right with the pain as it is, emotional pain, physical pain, there's no room in the mind, no room in the heart to be the one who doesn't like it. So there's um, powerful insight, besides just being a pragmatic way to deal with pain when there's nothing we can do about it. There's deep insight in this endurance of hardship. And it turns out that being right in the middle, like when there is pain, and there's nothing to do, being right in the middle is the safest place. And this is a lesson we meditators learn. Like again, just something ordinary like back pain or knee pain. You notice if you're somewhat right in the middle, really open, receiving it, practicing not being afraid of it, you might find that the pain, even if it's been there for a while, it's definitely workable. But if the mind gets even a little bit distracted, if the settledness of that presence wavers, all of a sudden the pain in the body can be immediately overwhelming. I can't take it. Got to move. Got to do something. And this is this principle in action. The safest place to be with pain is right in the middle. It's dangerous to run from pain because <laughs> it's going to get you. <laughs> it's like the 
if you've ever gone body surfing, you know, and all of a sudden a wave's coming in that's bigger than you expected or want to deal with, and it's too late to run, you know, but you do it anyway, and then you definitely get pushed around in the surf. The thing to do is just to turn right toward it and at the right moment to dive into it, right? And then you might actually survive. (laughs) (laughs) So those are the ones we talked about last night. And before I get to the questions that people left, I'll just mention the last. So we have gentle forbearance. We're bringing up this force, this wholesome force of concern for ourselves and others, hiri otapa, we're bringing it up as a counterweight to the reactivity that's gotten triggered. Oh, I don't want to do anything that causes me or anybody harm. So I'm going to slow down. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be full of presence so that I respond in a way that minimizes harm. And then the endurance is realizing, often through a lot of mistakes, that being right in the middle of pain is the safest place to be. And the third is called acceptance of truth. So recognizing that one of the things that arises with patience is a way to connect with the truth. And I mentioned this the very first night, that when we're patient, with something, it means that the mind, that there's enough wisdom in the mind not to be confused by the story we're telling ourselves about whatever's being known. Right? So it's, in a sense, it's an immunity to the story we have about what's happening. It gives, and that, that's, uh, you know, that first step in mindfulness, as the Buddha describes it, is seeing things in and of themselves in that non-conceptual way. doesn't mean we don't have a story or a concept about what's happening, whether it's good, whether it's fair. We might, but the mind in a moment or in moments can practice not being confused by the story that we have. In a sense, it's like looking right through the story. I give that example about the back door screen. You know, when you're in your house or whatever and you're looking out the door and there's a screen on the door, it's summertime, and you can get completely fixated on the screen. You know, is it an old screen or a new screen? Are there bugs that have gotten caught? You know how little bugs sometimes get squashed in the screen or people messed up with the paint and the paints kind of block some of the screen? And your whole life can be nothing but screen. And then one day somebody says, relax your gaze. And all of a sudden you look right through the screen and you see there's a backyard there. The backyard was always there, but we've missed it. And it's the same thing when we're in a reactive mode, not a patient mode, but a reactive mode. It's like the screen. All we see is the reactivity in the mind. We see the greed, anger, delusion, and all the mental content that flows out of the greediness in the mind and the fear and aversion and irritation in the mind. It's like that's all we see. And then when there's that wisdom of patience, it's the capacity to look right through the screen and to see something that was always there. We call it dharma or dhamma the way it is, but it's just reality 
not confused with concept. Thoughts may be there, but thoughts are just thoughts. The experience of pain, or it wouldn't even be pain, it would just be you know, those sensations being known, they may be intense, but there's no story. And this is a, <clears throat> in terms of unpacking this experience of patience, now you can take something going on right now or something that happened earlier today, something that was challenging, got excited about something that arose in your mind or got irritated by somebody's breathing or the sound of the blower or something. And then just now in hindsight, asking yourself, well, what is that experience free of my story about that experience? What is knee pain without any concept of me, any concept of me, What is experience without the story? And this is a this points to this experience of patience when uh, the mind, when the wisdom in the mind, right, it has this immunity to the activity of thought, concepts, concept. What we I mentioned last night, uh, papancha, mental proliferation conceptual proliferation, right? So we don't need to try to stop conceptual proliferation or stop thinking. Patience is not being confused. Like, I'm going to be right in the middle. I'm going to let this moment be no matter what my mind says. Right? Because we're practicing connecting. Connecting, connecting, connecting. And there's a lot of power in this acceptance of the truth. It's really similar to the, you know, the whole awakening process. One way it's described as seeing, in a, in <coughs> seeing or experiencing in any moment the difference between the space of the heart or the space of knowing, the space of the present moment, and the activity. Right? So... When we're resting in things as they are, the activity of thought is just nature. We don't have to live according to thoughts, which is a good thing because a lot of our thoughts, you know, I'm sure you've noticed, are not very helpful. They're coming out of really primitive conditioning that we didn't sign up for. We just got it growing up where and when we grew up. So it's so useful not to be having to live under that influence, at least all the time. So do this experiment about looking at what's left, like you're having a set, you're sitting, and you're having a difficult moment in your set, and then just ask the question, what is this experience independent of the story that I'm telling myself about what's going on. What is this experience? And that's like another way of saying, honey, can you be patient with this? Right? But generally, we get a little rebellious when we say that. No, I can't be patient with this. I have been patient. Haven't, been, haven't you been noticing? <laughs> I've been patient. It's time to be impatient. <laughs> but the question, well, what is this free or independent of the thoughts and story that I have about this? This is from the Dao Di Cheng 
Do you have the patience to wait till your mind settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving to till the right action arises by itself? This is an interesting quote from Ajahn Brahm, a, a well-known Western Buddhist monk. And um, he's the abbot of a monastery in Australia, near Perth, I believe. And this is a well-known book of his, Mindfulness, Bliss, and Beyond, a really good book on concentration practice. He says in there, stillness means lack of movement. Since will causes the mind to move, right? Any kind of volitional action causes the mind to move. To experience stillness, one must remove all will, volitional action, all doing, all control. If you grasp a leaf, of a tree and try your hardest to hold it still, no matter how hard you try, you will never succeed. There will always be some vibration caused by slight tremors in your muscles. However, if you don't touch the leaf and you just protect it from the breeze, then the leaf comes to a natural state of stillness. In exactly the same way, you cannot achieve stillness by holding the mind in the grip of the will. But if you remove the cause of movement in the mind, the will, the mind soon becomes still. And you might remember if you took a look at that article that I sent everybody early on, uh, actually before the retreat began, from Ajahn Sushito about intention. He's talking, I think, about the same thing. He says, however, there is a place where the floods stop and the wind doesn't blow. It is in the ending of intention. Right? Intention, another word for intention, is volitional action or will. It's the same thing. It is in the ending of intention. The world stops, or rather, doesn't get created. And, that, and when that process of seeking, wavering, and tightening stops, transcendence or crossing over finally means that the movement of mind which tries to circumvent, forget, defeat, stop, divert, allay, placate, stops. And that stopping, the very conditions that appear to confront us evaporate. So that's so interesting. Like That should make us want to check this out. Is it true that the problem evaporates when... Uh, intention is understood. Intention is no longer charged with wrong view, like my intention. It's like another way of thinking of this is when you have a force moving through space, what is that force? The only real way to know a force moving through empty space is to somehow resist it. That, then it has a presence. But what's a force when there's no resistance? What's movement when it's not bumping up against anything? What is movement when it's not bumping up against anything? It's interesting when you watch movies about space, you know, and they they show the craft going, but there's there's not a lot to contrast the movement of the spaceship against, right? So sometimes it feels a little weird. You know, it's like, 
because movement is relative to something not moving or moving in a different direction. So all of our drama needs something outside of it. And when that something is removed, what is drama? What is anger? What is greed? When nobody, nothing arises to take it, to identify with it, or to resist it. And this is why hating desire doesn't help, or hating anger doesn't help. We don't resolve the problem of our dukkha, of suffering or stress, by making it a personal project that we have to overcome. We resolve stress in the mind, stress in the heart, by understanding that it's just movement, understanding, like we've been talking about this week, how to be patient with it, how not to be in opposition to it. So these three um, forbearance, which is bringing in this counterweight of, I don't want to harm anybody, myself included, and endurance, which is really pointing to absorption, like getting right in the middle as the safest place. And then that sets up this third expression of patience, which is being with nature with a mind not under the influence of its concepts about nature. There may be thoughts, but there's no dependence, there's no fixedness with those thoughts. So it's just the movement of nature. We have the mind that knows, and the movement of everything, thoughts, emotions, sights, sounds, sensations. And these two things, two aspects of nature, play very well together. But it's the not understanding that there are these two things that create problems. Because when we don't understand, there's knowing, the mind, and there's the activity of nature. When we don't understand that there are two things, then this activity of nature, what we think, what we feel, sensations we feel, sounds we hear, it all feels very personal. And we feel personally like we need a response, an opinion, a reaction to what's moving. But when we understand there's this movement and wake up to the mind that knows, the nature of the mind, then what dawns in this dance between these two things is how to let the activity be the activity and the empty space of knowing be the empty space of knowing. It's the recognizing the nature of knowing or the nature of mind that allows the mind to leave everything that's moving alone. The reason the mind doesn't leave everything alone is it feels neurotically that that's all there is. So it's not quite right to say that we learn to rest in awareness, but more maybe by learning to rest in awareness, uh, we realize that the activity of everything is okay. doesn't mean that people aren't suffering, bad things aren't happening, but that that's okay too. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about it. Doing something about it is okay. Because it's all part of the activity, right? So we're just letting the activity, our personality is part of the activity. 
most of all what we think of, take ourselves to be, is all the activity of nature. We haven't really woken up to this other half. Otherwise, we wouldn't be on a Buddhist retreat. We'd be taking care of everybody, right? Because there'd be nothing left to do if we already understood this deeply. See if there's anything else here I wanted to read. In that stopping, the very conditions that appear to confront us evaporate. And through knowing that, one is unafraid of conditions. One does not hanker after them, and one is not intimidated by them. Patience is a big part of that. With patience, instead of trying to wriggle, wiggle out of suffering, one learns to be still and to release the mind from its willfulness and possessiveness. Then, when the perfections have done their work and the flood of one's world has receded, intention, even the good intention of parami can relax. There is true peace of mind. And you can even feel respect for the ungrateful and exasperating. They help you to wear out your addiction to self-view, to having your own way. And they help you to lose your fascination or irritation with the personalities of other people and all that which is just karma and no real self at all. Then you say thank you to pointless situations and people who irritate you. This is the perfection of patience. It can make one's life a vehicle for blessing. And I'll just end with a short quote from Ajahn Chah. He <clears throat> gives his definition of nibbana, nirvana, or the cessation of dukkha. He says, But what is nibbana about, all about anyway? Nibbana means not grasping. Nibbana means not giving meaning to things. Right? That's that conceptual proliferation. Nibbana means letting go, making offerings and doing meritorious deeds, observing the moral precepts around non-harming, and meditating on loving-kindness. All these are for getting rid of defilements and craving. They are also for making the mind empty, empty of self-cherishing, empty of concepts of self and others, and for not wishing for anything, not wishing to be or to become anything. So now to the question. Some relate with patience. So I'll start there. And the first one says, how best to work with projection of pain from others upon you? And so this is a nice chance just to review what I just said, right? Because we could just test out the teachings. So somebody's projecting, on, projecting onto you something, and I, as I understand the comment, it's painful. So they're putting something, seemingly they're putting something on you, but actually what's happening is they're doing something and you're constructing the idea that what they're doing is painful. And saying it that way means it helps us take responsibility that if we're suffering, then this is a pretty radical notion, but you can check it out and see if it isn't true. If we're suffering... It's because there's something going on in our mind that's the cause of that suffering. Now, 
what we're doing in our mind or our heart might be related to what somebody says or somebody the way somebody's acting. But it's not enough for somebody to say something or act some way. We actually have to do something with it. And so we could practice this forbearance, like, I don't want to harm myself or anybody else. I don't, there is enough suffering in the world. At the very beginning of Sylvia Borstein's book, she talks about seeing the sign, I think it was her first insight meditation retreat, and on the wall, it was at somebody's house, and on the wall was this sign that said, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? Right? And so that's that forbearance, knowing that life is difficult. It is so easy to set in motion more suffering. So I want to be careful. This is an act of kindness. I want to be full of care. I want to be patient. I want to be thoughtful before I respond. So it slows things down. And then in that slowing down, we can, somebody's projecting something on you that's painful then we can practice going right into the pain, getting absorbed, getting intimate with it, undefended with it, so that the self disappears, at least for a moment. And the mind realizes something, this is what I meant before, that it's the personalizing the pain that is the cause for suffering. Pain is pain. When it's personalized, it's unworkable. What is pain when it's not my pain? It's like a really good Vipassana koan. Right? Vipassana is this wisdom practice that we do, paying attention to things as they are. So a koan is like a question we hold, not just to reflexively answer it, but the question helps illuminate the experience or teaches us how to practice with experience. So what is unpleasant experience, pain, without the story, without it feeling, without it being, without us telling ourselves it's personal or seeing it as if it's personal? What is that experience? See, now that that can make pain interesting, a real teacher for us. So we practice forbearance, remembering that we don't want to add more suffering We practice endurance, going right into the middle of the pain that we're feeling because of somebody's supposed projection. And then we're practicing, like I just mentioned, being seeking the truth or accepting the truth. What is this without personalizing it? So we start to see these patterns that I'm not like maybe in that kind of situation it's I'm not getting the kind of respect I should be getting from this person. Or they don't understand me. Or they are judging me harshly, unfairly. Right? So whatever whatever they might be projecting on us, we want to see that conclusion the mind has drawn. They just don't understand me. Or they just don't like me. And we want to see it as a thought not in terms of the content of the thought. Oh, that's just a thought. And that's not a put-down to say that's just a thought. That's a powerful recognition of the truth. It is just a thought. A lot of people say to me, you know, 
uh, that, that's somewhat dismissive, well, we're not going to hurt the thought's feeling by saying it's just a thought. And it's not meant to be a defensive action. Like to protect ourselves, we say to unpleasant thoughts, oh, that's, you're just a thought. You can't scare me. You're just a thought. It's not a put-down. It comes from this very resonant, powerful place. My God, it's just a thought. It's just a feeling. It's just an emotion. It's just a sound. It's not more or less than what it is in this moment. It's that simplifying the experience to the truth of it, to the actual truth of it, is liberating. So that's what we have to do when we experience these insults. First, we bring up this powerful force, I don't want to add more suffering in my own life, or any, so I'm going to be careful. And that gives us enough wherewithal to aim, to get right in the middle of it. Oh, this is happening. It's like this. Can this be okay? And we get right in the middle of it. And then in the middle, or in the vicinity of the middle of it, you know, then we practice not being confused by any patterns of reactivity, whatever the mind might say about it. Just thoughts. Let me go right to what's being known. Well, that's just a thought. So again, we're not rejecting it when we say that's just a thought. It's a real connection. right? That's an intimate moment we realize that's just a thought. It's not dismissive. It's intimate thought, emotion, sensation. It's like this beautiful deconstruction because we care we want to be close to the reality because we don't want to cause harm and it feels so alive there in the middle that's what i was that's that second piece the absorption the being right in the middle there's so much energy when we're like with pain but not reacting to it it's a very alive place I don't know how, how related it is, but you know how they say sometimes people who've been in war zones in really difficult places, they come back and it's hard because the intensity of that situation uh, stripped away so much superficiality and helped the person be so in the moment in a way. And then when they're back in the world of shopping malls and catalogs and what restaurant do we go to tonight or what do we make for dinner? Somehow those things, it's just easier to go back to automatic pilot. It's not so easy to show up and to be real. The next comment or question. Can you speak about responding or turning to impatience directed toward you by another with patience? When impatience is directed at me, it feels violent, like I'm being manipulated. Yeah, and I think it's really the same thing. Is we have to uh, first slow down, orient toward the pain, the ouch, not the idea, not even the emotion of being manipulated, but right to the fact that it hurts, right, and seek the truth there. That's the key. And um, it doesn't really matter when we're doing this deeper level of practice, in moments at least, it doesn't really matter the cause of the pain, whether 
something happened long ago or something's happening right now, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, because our mind is actually more simple than we might imagine. The reality in terms of the mind is, this hurts. This hurts. And there's a very strong compulsion to be the one who says, I don't like it. Right? So if mindfulness, wisdom wavers for even an instant, then there's going to be, this hurts, and I don't like it. And if we have some mindfulness, then there can be, it can be a little bit more simple. This hurts. And then even more mindfulness, sensation being known. right? And all the habit energy around the sensation being known, also being known. Just movement and knowing. Movement and knowing. But no resistance to the movement. That's called freedom, not suffering. When there's just movement being known, then where's the resistance? What could actually be the cause for dukkha if it's just movement and being known? Movement is being known. The movement of sensation, even really intense sensation. The movement of emotion, the movement of thought, sight, sound, being known. So really the same comments to the first question that someone had. And then somebody asked, I'm not sure of your point regarding patience and the burning forest or the pool of water. So I thought I'd read Rumi's poem because that's what she was referring to where he, what I mentioned, this wonderful poem translated by Coleman Barks. And it's the question. <clears throat> Rumi is a Persian poet from the 1300s or thereabouts. One dervish to another. A dervish is someone in the Sufi tradition, um, mystical tradition of Islam. One dervish to another. What was your vision of God's presence? I haven't seen anything, but for the sake of conversation, I'll tell you a story. (laughs) It's not a great beginning. (laughs) God's presence is there in front of me. A fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks toward the fire, into the fire. Another toward the sweet flowing water. You have to remember, this is in a hot climate. So the sweet flowing water is nice and the fire is not so good. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under the water surface. That head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. You see what this has to do with patience? Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure, right, one of the floods, and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I'm not fire, I'm fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a 100,000 sets of moth wings so you could burn them away one set a night. The moth sees light and goes into the fire. You should see fire and go toward the light. Fire is what of God is world-consuming. Water, world-protecting. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other to these eyes you have now. What looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. This is a great description of samsara. 
You've seen a magician make a bowl of rice seem a dish full of tiny live worms. Before an assembly with one breath, he made a a floor swarm with scorpions that weren't there. How much more amazing God's tricks. Generation after generation lies down defeated, they think. But they're like a woman underneath a man circling him. One molecule, moat, second, thinking of God's reversal of comfort and pain is better than attending any ritual. That splinter of intelligence is substance. The fire and water themselves accidental, done with mirrors. So hopefully that (laughs) gives something. And you can uh, just find that poem. If you just Google the question by Rumi, R-U-M-I, you'll get that. How does faith manifest itself in this practice? So sadha is the Pali word, which means to put your heart upon, something you feel confident to put your heart upon, or something you feel confident to put the most sacred or the most fragile, delicate thing. And uh, so it's interesting, in, in the Buddhist path, this path of waking up, the thing we trust most is really the first insight that arises for us when we start to pay a more close attention to life, which is how lawful everything is. So we place our trust. We call that in Buddhism karma. Like We live in a lawful universe, cause and effect, and intention matters. The willfulness, the volitional activity of our mind It's not so much that it makes an imprint on reality. The intentions in our mind make an imprint in our own mind. So if I'm angry, if I have the intention to hurt somebody, I've made an imprint in my own mind. I don't need anybody to tell me I've created karma because I can see, we can see the imprint we've made in our own mind when we've gotten identified with anger or We've been really patient in the best sense of the word. That also affects the mind stream, how it goes forward. You have a really good set and you experience a deeper level of calm and steadiness and that feeling, that experience of unification than you have before. That makes an imprint in your mind. The mind going forward, the heart going forward is the mind or heart that has had that experience. It's never the same. Because now it's the mind that's had that experience. So everything is in that light. Everything experiences in the light of having had that experience, having that imprint from that action. So first we have faith in karma, and then with deeper practice, more steady practice, we know something about freedom. When Buddha knows Dharma, right? we talk about faith in this way in Buddhism, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. But it's this activity of the mind when that clear, empty, wakeful quality of the heart opens to Dhamma the way it is, something amazing happens. Right? There's no greed, anger, delusion operating in those moments. So all of our activity we call Sangha. So we take refuge in Buddha, knowing Dhamma, the awakened potential of the mind, waking up to the circumstances as they actually are, 100% 
free of greed, anger, and delusion, and then we notice that our action is what we call enlightened or beautiful or sangha. It's the action, the response, the engagement, not colored by greed, anger, and delusion. It's beautiful, whether we see it in ourselves or another person, because it's not personal. It's not an ego trip to notice, wow, that response was beautiful. What I said, what I did, what I didn't say, that was so beautiful. We actually, it's possible to be grateful, appreciative of your own behavior, because it's not personal. It was Sangha. It arose naturally when Buddha knows Sangha, when the awakened, clear mind is radically intimate with the way it is in the moment, then good things come from that. And we have, when we start having moments like that, and just good action, wholesome action just happens on its own seemingly, when we have a lot of faith, or a lot of faith begins to develop in the basic goodness of the mind, the potential of this heart or mind to be free in the world I'm actually inhabiting. Not free later when I'm in this special place, but free, skillful, kind, wise, with the messiness of the world we live in. That, that brings up lots of faith. Like, oh, this is a path I want to develop. Somebody says, I have zero energy in the afternoon. Invariably, if I engage in formal sitting practice after lunch, I am just struggling to stay awake. My approach is to walk instead of sit, or sit a little and walk a lot. What do you think? Good? Not so good. That sounds pretty good. And I think we want to be pragmatic. And remember that this kind of retreat is harder because we don't have bedrooms to go take a nap after lunch. (laughs) Some of you remember Vance um, who did the TCVC retreat. Maybe the last couple of years he's been assisting Steve and Kamala when they teach. But he's uh, um, a relatively new Dharma teacher out in Washington State. And uh, he said he, he was assisting a retreat that Joseph Goldstein taught and Kamala out at uh, Spirit Rock last summer. And when he was introduced to Joseph and jo- Joseph realized he'll be assisting, you know, as a teacher in training that he'd be assisting, Joseph said, there's just a few things you have to remember. And I, I forget what the, the most important thing, but it's like, it's all Dharma. And the second thing is, don't interrupt my afternoon nap. <laughs> so it's challenging here because we don't have places to rest after lunch. I mean, you can do it here, but it's not necessarily as easily. So that's another thing. Go on a residential retreat where you have a bed <laughs> and you can take a nap. And then eventually you'll lie down because you want a nap and you'll, one day you'll notice, but my mind doesn't want to go to sleep. It wants to be mindful. And that will be a very poignant moment. It will be both sad because you've grown to like your afternoon nap and amazing that the mind doesn't really want to be unconscious. It wants to connect with things as they are. People have talked to me about this even on this retreat. And this is a very common experience, especially if you do retreats that are longer than three or four days, is at times at least energy starts to build and you may be ready to go to sleep or not at night, but mindfulness does not want to go to sleep. It just want to, wants to keep paying attention. And you'll be there sitting in bed, pajamas on, and it's like there's this bright light bulb. And it's not a light you've actually turned on. It's just the mind itself. 
is bright and noticing everything, including noticing I'm not ready to sleep. But it's 11 o'clock and I got to get up. No, but it's just that way. Or you wake up and it's 2.30. So I always tell people, you know, uh, because we hold the schedule lightly, you really want to experiment with getting up when you wake up and going to bed when you're actually sleepy, not when you think you should be sleepy, but you're actually sleepy. Then you go to bed. Because for one of the few times in our lives, we're not you know, imprisoned by the world's schedule. We can really follow our own rhythms, especially for longer retreats, it's useful. Was there a specific turning point where your practice became much more constant and consistent? If so, what precipitated it? Well, <laughs> I was wondering what I call my practice constant and consistent. I mean, on the surface, right from the beginning, I was constant and consistent. You know, I started a daily practice, and I really haven't deviated from my daily practice for, you know, 33 years. I mean, there's, there are a few days when I don't sit, but formally, but very few where I don't sit at all. And um, so, but a lot of it was just like grasping or being desperate on the surface level, like wanting to align with the practice. So even if I wasn't doing any good in my sit, I'd go sit. You know, I would go through the motions of sitting no matter what. But in terms of the inner practice of um, being interested in dukkha and the ending of dukkha, stress and the ending of stress, I think when it really caught on fire was when I started to have some deeper insights about freedom from suffering. It's like I I mentioned this, for me, the predominant takeaway from any moment of insight is it's okay, it's always been okay, it will always be okay. And so when you have that with enough clarity, it's like it's so clear that that's what life is about. Like that's the most important thing is to stabilize that understanding that it's okay, it's been okay, it will always be okay. And that's true not with blinders on, but actually seeing the messiness and the suffering in the world. And no, it sounds paradoxical. Another way of saying it is if there's something to be done, some compassionate response to do, then do it. If there's nothing to be done to alleviate suffering in this moment right now, then there's nothing to be done. But there's never a reason to be tight. There's never a reason to justify suffering. Suffering is unnecessary. So when we have that insight in a moment where the mind actually, the heart actually wakes up to the unnecessariness of suffering, then any time we're in a state of suffering, to some degree, depending on how distracted the mind is, the mind understands. It doesn't have to be this way. The heart doesn't need to be burdened. The mind doesn't need to be tight. So it always sort of, oh, but that's sort of interesting. Why why is this happening if it doesn't have to happen? You see, so the curiosity 
that makes the practice steady and constant is there when we have insight that it's okay, it's been okay, always will be okay. So I'll leave it here. There are a couple questions I didn't get to, but I'll put aside a little time tomorrow after the uh, guided meditation at 8 o'clock to answer the last three or four questions. So just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Willing to be right in the middle. Not needing to negotiate at the moment. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.